6261 District 6, stage 1 shooting. Skimmer Wayne, near Lakeland, Charles, 478 Tango. 378-1654. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Ceballero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, once again, thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. I, I got to tell you, man, you guys are really answering the call. You know, one of the things we've been asking the past couple weeks is for you guys to go over there to iTunes and kind of like our shows and rate the shows. And, and you guys are answering that call, and we really appreciate it. We're starting to pick up a big international audience. I don't know what's happening here, but I know it's all because of our uh, co-host, and here he is. Kelly, come on in here and say hello to everybody. That's right. I'm, I'm not just bad. I'm nationwide. International. You are the international <laughs> I, Ted Nugent I'm of EMS. international Ted Nugent of EMS. Okay. <laughs> so you're actually on the road. Uh, Show the listeners what you're doing. I'm on the road again. I have uh, just just got finished giving my talk at the MSAC conference in San Diego, California. Staying here at the Lowe's Coronado Bay Resort overlooking Coronado Bay. I keep hoping I'll see uh, some seals out here exercising, but apparently not. It's too, um, er- it's too early for them, isn't it? I mean, they, it's a little bit hot. The hot weather is... Oh, you're talking about Navy seals. Oh, okay. Navy seals. I'm sorry. Navy I'm sorry. seals, man. But uh, yeah, I'm doing that, and by the time the show airs, I'll have uh, I'll have been to uh, Connecticut to uh, do the Connecticut EMS Expo. So it's a good few days getting to hang out with my EMS tribe and and talk about the stuff we love to talk about. It's always great, uh, you know, traveling around. You get to go up to the Great Mohegan Sun up there in the awesome oh, state yeah. of Connecticut, and uh, what a great place! I remember when they built that. Uh, I was growing up in New York City when they put that together, and it was all the talk. Everybody was heading up there, and. Uh, uh, you've been there before, and it's just an awesome place. Yeah, it is. It is opulent, and a good bunch of people. That's what make any conference. We got a good, good bunch of people at this conference in San Diego uh, with MSAC and uh, the Connecticut EMS Expo. Uh, organizers and participants are are great folks. Love to go up there. Awesome. Well, let's go ahead and do this thing, man. Hit us with our first news story. Well, it's, once again, in the uh, in the driver safety and fatigue categories, we got a couple of them. In Jasper, Texas, paramedic fell asleep at the wheel of an ambulance and rolled it over. David Warren Ogle and uh, his partner, Wade Alexander, of Care Plus EMS, weren't injured. Thank God for that. Uh, and it was my my colleagues at Acadian Ambulance who, who came and uh, took care of them and, and apparently uh, obtained refusals. But David was was near the end of a 48-hour shift. He fell asleep on the road, you know, and, and I think this, this highlight the dangers of long shifts in EMS and the need for agencies to have some sort of fatigue mitigation policy. He went off the south side of Highway 63, crossed two lanes of traffic, and then went off the north side of the highway and rolled it over. So, you know, that that just has tragedy written all over it. Right. Uh, and, and lucky it didn't happen, but it ought to be a wake-up call for Care Plus EMS and for the rest of the industry. We keep waiting for that wake-up call, but no one seems to answer it, man. You know, I think it goes back to that whole thing, though, Kelly, is that people don't think it's going to happen to them. And, and this is the paradigm we're in now of these 24-hour shifts and, and running mm-hmm. 15, 16, 17, 19 calls in a 24-hour period. You know, these yep. things, I don't know that this is what happened in this case, but it really needs to start to think about, do we need to go into 8 and 10-hour shifts? And the challenge is, is how do our folks make ends meet when we start taking that overtime away? And, and mm-hmm. uh, But we really have to be able to find ways to do that. I think we're just going to continue to hear about these stories as they pop up. 
I'm going to take you to mine. Mine goes back to FDNY medic accused of falsifying PCR for a man with a DNR order. I got to say that these things are happening more and more. And we have to remember that we operate under our medical director's license. We have to be able to follow the protocols as they're set. Because now this is somebody that's going to face a felony for falsifying documentation. There was an elderly woman who couldn't find her dying husband's DNR paperwork. And the medics were charged with reporting care that they did not provide. Now, th this is the bad thing about it, is that, that they lied as to what they did. You know, they said that they provided care that they didn't. A and it just so happens that a, a supervisor arrived on scene and, and found that there were some challenges there. But now we've got to worry about uh, lawsuits. We've got to worry about losing certifications. We've got to worry about, uh, you know, all these things that happen because we're trying to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. but, but we have to understand that either we change the law in every single state, we have to see that documentation, or we just have to do what we've got to do. And, you know, it's bringing people through, you know, care that they don't want. But what choice do we have? You know, I think uh, I, I feel for these these two medics. Um, and, and I approach this from, from a street provider's a grunt standpoint. And, and it this is a bad case of, of no good deed goes unpunished. Um and, and, and I, I find it rather ludicrous that, that criminal charges were filed uh, over this. I, I think that's a case of overkill. But it's testament that if, if your policies and procedures at your agency don't allow for your crews to do the right thing, then there's something wrong with your policies and procedures at your agency. If they have to, I'm not condoning them falsifying paperwork or anything like that, but if two medics at an agency thought that that was their their best path to do the right thing for their patients, and that ought to tell administrators, hey, maybe we need to to rethink the way we treat these uh, these DNR cases, sure. uh, and not some put so many obstacles in the path of of doing the right thing. How many of yeah. us have been in EMS for long enough that that we just cringe at the thought of inflicting the the trauma on on someone's frail body that doesn't need it, won't benefit from it. Who it's, doesn't it's want cruel. it. Who doesn't want yeah, it. Exactly. It's cruel. I can think of no crueler thing that we do to patients than to flail on their body, break their ribs and their sternum, and poke them full of holes and, and fill them with all sorts of chemicals. But the challenge is... death with dignity, anything but dignified. The challenge is, is we have no recourse. And this isn't just in, yeah. in the state of New York. This is around the United States. And certainly it doesn't account for, you know, falsification of a record because that, that goes to the basis of integrity. Now, all the things that you say now as you go forward and all the things that you write in your charts, is that something that's going to be able to oh, yeah. stand up in court? The answer is going to be no. But Yeah, they I, screwed up. No, no doubt about it. But you know, they I'm interested. screwed up doing the right thing. I, I'm curious about some of the comments, too, Kelly. I don't know if you saw them, but there's a lot of people who are saying... You know, they don't either condone, uh, um, defend or condone the falsification of documentation, but they understand why it happened. You know, and it seems that there's a similar response to this whole thing. We all know what the right thing is to do. The right thing is to do, as you mentioned, is to let this guy die in, with some dignity, uh, as he wanted to. But the mm -hmm. challenge is we don't get to make those decisions. You know, we operate under our medical director's license, and we've got to be able to do what he tells us to do. Now, what's wrong with getting on the phone with medical control and saying, you know what, they don't have a DNR, this guy's got Lou Gehrig's disease, the wife wants us to withhold care, she's not providing any paperwork because she can't find the doc, what do I do? That's exactly what they should have done. You know, you, you always run the, 
what if you get the doctor on the phone who doesn't know you and, and thinks that uh, EMS should bring everyone to the ER and let the doctor sort them out? You know, oh, that's uh, not- you know, if he doesn't have a DNR, you've got to do CPR. Uh, get on it and bring him on in. Uh, and then you're, you're sunk. You know, not only have you, if you choose to follow the patient's wishes, you're now defying direct medical control orders. You know, you Kelly. Know, put this- you even, even in a bad position uh, all the same. This is, this is a great testament for community paramedicine right here. Yes, it is. Because if there was a challenge and this guy was close to, to dying and his wish was to stay home, could you now put a community paramedic or even the paramedic that was there on scene? Mm-hmm. You know, you've got enough fentanyl, you've got enough morphine, whatever you're carrying. You've got, you know, you've got uh, Zofran, whatever it is to make everybody feel comfortable. And you just sit there and hold this guy's hand until he passes away. You know, that, that's the hospice's job, but if they're not there on scene, this is the perfect example of when this would work. Exactly. And, and you know, I can't count the number of times I've had hospice patients uh, in the last few years um, where the family called and, and validated a DNR saying, you know, well, this is not what we wanted. And that goes, that goes back to the whole um, lack of education. Uh, someone fell down on the job and did not tell these family members, what being a hospice patient entails. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they think that, that um, it's neglect till dead instead of do not resuscitate in case their heart stops. Right. Um, and, and they don't, uh, they, they don't grasp uh, just how traumatic and, and, and hard resuscitation actually is and, and what it does. Um, I think they ought to, if, if, when we when we talk about DNR uh, DNR orders in hospice, perhaps families should should watch a video of a traumatic resuscitation and and just see what all is done to their loved ones. Yeah, I don't know that it comes <laughs> down to that, though, man. I, and and let me let me put this spin on it because we we kind of went off in this direction. I think this is an awesome awesome discussion. Is there are EMS agencies that are working with hospice as part of a community paramedicine program. Mm-hmm. And especially if you have 911 um, coverage, because you can put those people into the CAD system and you know that they're on hospice as those 911 calls come in. Mm-hmm. What's really great about it, Kelly, is that if, you know, you, you, first off, you go meet the patient. You say, hey, you know what? If, if you need to call somebody and your nurse isn't available, you know, we're going to be there to, to help you out as well. And you, you kind of get that introduction with the family. But, but you know as well as I do, the wishes are I want to die at home. Now the family's around in those final minutes and there starts the guppy breathing and there starts the death rattle. And the reason that they're calling is because they don't know what else to do. And, yeah. and it's, that, it's that I've got to do something mentality to where they pick up the phone, they dial 911, we come in with our bag of tricks, do what we have to do, put them on the stretcher, take them to the hospital. Now hospice is responsible for the ambulance bill and the ER bill. And if this guy now gets uh, admitted. Yeah. Now, one you of the what? things that's happening is the community paramedic is seeing that. He's going in. He's calling the, the hospice nurse and say, hey, get over there as quick as you can. And again, he's giving them the morphine. He's giving them the fentanyl. He's giving them the Zofran. But at that point in time, the patient is the family. And this guy yeah. gets what he wants. And, and then the cost savings comes in the hospice to say, look, we just saved mm-hmm. you X amount of thousands of dollars. Yeah. We'd like a little bit of that cost savings. And that's a lot cheaper than uh, an ambulance bill and an ER bill. Yeah, it definitely is. And, you know, and, and going back to looking at this from the provider standpoint, I'd, I'd urge people, you know, doing the right thing. Doing the right thing is, is never wrong or is never a bad thing uh there are ways to go about it and these these two medics did not go about it in the right way 
Uh, if you're going to be a patient advocate and honor their wishes against policy and procedure, that's not necessarily that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to slavishly follow those policies and procedures to the letter. There's always wiggle room built into them, but you have to put the decision on someone else's shoulders and document what you were doing appropriately. Uh, so call the doctor, paint right. a good patient picture, and and appeal to the doctor's sense of humanity as well. And, and likely as not, when I do those things. Uh, I rarely get turned down for any orders I ask because I paint a good patient picture. Um, they probably could have done this, and, and other medics who other medics can learn from their uh, from their experience and, and do that in the future. Don't make that mistake. I agree. You know, before you get into your next topic, Kelly, I, I think yeah. one of the things that we may want to talk about uh, maybe on the next show because we're, we're taking the news is going a little bit long, and this may be the only thing we cover today is the highlights of the uh, of EMS news. But we probably need to talk about given a good patient report because mm-hmm. I've heard patient reports where they're given the shoe size and the color of the underwear. And, you know, there's just so much stuff that goes in there yeah. and, and we need to dedicate one of our shows, I think, to giving a good patient report. Yeah. A good pre-arrival notification and a good handoff report. Excellent. Yeah. Well, give us our next story. What do you got? We've got a, I've got a shout out to, uh, to a student who saved a life after learning CPR at an airport kiosk. Yeah, how great was that story? That is, that is awesome. This young man, Matthew Lickenbrack performed hand only, hands only CPR on a university of Dayton student with, uh, skills he learned from an AHA hands only CPR kiosk at the airport. Uh, in April, he was driving to a class when he saw a flash of lightning, uh, that appeared to hit the building where he was headed. He pulled into the parking lot and saw a young man face down on the ground. And apparently the, the student had been, uh, the victim, Sean Ferguson, had been struck by lightning. Um, uh, he wasn't breathing or moving, and Lickenbrock started CPR and managed to save a life. And, and this, is, this is exactly what we talk about when, right. when we talk about crowdsourcing health care and, and, and getting the public more actively involved. These kind of, these kind of uh, calls are not going to be possible if you place all the burden of, of uh, response and resuscitation on EMS, uh, you're not going to have success stories like this unless the public is actively involved. Um, you know, and we talked uh, we talked in the last podcast about the uh, the medic who built a uh, a portable CPR training kiosk, right. uh, and and that's the kind of technology that's going to going to really make a difference uh, in communities and make you know making them uh, heart safe communities in, in in actual practice as well as in name. So. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations to the young man. I mean, incredible story. When I first yeah. read the story, I mean, this is exactly what it's supposed to do. And but but I think it goes further than that. What it shows is that the community getting involved in CPR is mm-hmm. really the early signs of, you know, of return of spontaneous circulation. And, and yep. that's why folks like, uh, you know, the folks up there at Alina Health and in uh, Minnesota and the folks up at uh, King County in Seattle yep. You know, and just so many different places have 40 and 50 percent return of spontaneous circulation rates. It's because of this early initiation of CPR. Mm -hmm. When I had the opportunity to go up to the Resuscitation Academy in uh, Seattle, which is an incredible program. They've been they've been doing this program this way since 1976, Kelly. And Mm -hmm. and one of the things that the dispatchers will say is, is your patient conscious or unconscious? Well, I think he's unconscious. Is the patient breathing? Yes or no? Yeah. Is the patient mm-hmm. breathing normally is the next question. If the answer is, I don't know, they automatically start chest compressions. That's the yeah. very next thing. I mean, three things, they're onto chest compressions. And in all this time, they had one injury 
of broken ribs, and it wasn't even because of the CPR. It was because they pulled the guy off the bed. You know, if you look at, at, at all the, the EMS systems that boast really, really good cardiac arrest numbers, um, there's one thing that they all have in common. It's not, and it's not that they have super medics. It's that they have strong community CPR programs. Uh, that prob- in addition to having the, you know, stellar advanced life support and great EMTs and response times, if you don't have the first link in the chain of survival, uh, you have nothing. Um, and, and this, this is uh, an excellent testament to that. Right. Um, on a, on a tangent, man, here's, here's your trivia question for the day. Let's go. Uh, this victim was struck by lightning. You, you uh, respond to a ball field where several people have been struck by lightning. Which ones do you work, for, work on first? <sighs> I, I, don't know the, I don't know where you're leading me, but I would think you have to get the first per- person first. You, you, work on, you work on the dead ones first. You do the exact opposite of standard triage. Work on the blacks first, and the reds and the yellows come second. Because what's the, what's the, I mean, I would think that those people are going to be harder to resuscitate, but why, why is it that way? Because, uh, you know, with lightning, lightning strikes are one of those exceptions to the rule uh, of triage, is that you practice reverse triage because if you lived through a lightning strike, your chances are you're going to live and recover. Uh, on the other hand, many of the people who were killed outright or, or gone into cardiac arrest following the lightning strike has, you know, have resuscitatable, shockable rhythms. They're workable codes. Um, the other people are probably going to live. They're not going to code in the next few minutes. They're not going to get uh, significantly worse. So they recommend that you work on the uh, the dead ones first and, uh, and focus your energies on them because if you live through it, you live through it. So... Yeah, so, so that's I, your EMS trivia for the day. That was awesome, man. We should probably throw a trivia question in there. So let me go ahead and bring you my story. And this one right. kind of, uh, this one kind of hit me hard as well when it came out on May 25th. Wisconsin ambulance hit by gunfire. Two EMTs were inside the ambulance on their way to a call when a single bullet struck the vehicle. And this happened in Milwaukee. And uh, when I first saw it, it brings me back to, of course, you know, the, the whole Ferguson thing where we were worried mm-hmm. about our ambulances getting shot at and, you know, our paramedics were at the light and people were brandishing their weapons, pointing them at the, the ambulances and they had to speed away. And, and, you know, we talk about, and you and I have debated this uh, about paramedics carrying guns or paramedics being in body armor and more and more we're starting to see cops being executed and we're starting to see ambulances being hit and shot at and and is this is this a a change of paradigm now we've got to worry about emts and and paramedic safety when they're on the road uh, yeah and i i just uh you know we can say a million times uh keep your head on a swivel it's not a safe world out there look out for your yourself and your partner um uh but it it doesn't hit home um and i'm sure it hit home for these two guys uh when it was their ambulance hit with a gunfire, but there's, there's still a huge element of it can never happen to me. And you read the social media threads that talk about this sort of thing. And people will say, Oh, you don't, you know, you don't need guns. You don't need body armor. You don't need, uh, you don't need all the stuff. You need to stage outside the scene, you know, and don't go in until the cops have deemed it safe. Well, you know, that those aren't the scenes that get you killed. (laughs) 
Those aren't the scenes right. that get you killed. It was the seemingly innocuous scene that went rodeo after you got there. But this wasn't um, even a, this wasn't even a scene safety even thing. That. You know, this hell it might be a or might be fodder for uh, wearing your helmets inside the ambulance. You know, I talked to, talked about that before, and I was kind of disdainful. But you know, if it's <laughs> if a uh, little Kevlar headgear would stop a bullet, you know, I. I, I I bet there are two medics in Milwaukee who uh, who would seriously consider that right now. Yeah. I was uh, I've been in an ambulance that was hit by gunfire before. We never found out who the guy was. I think it was um, you. I think you did. No, we were coming back from a transfer when I worked for AMR and uh, driving along a country road, and there was nothing around. Uh, and driving down the highway in the middle of the night, and I heard a spang and looked, and and a bullet pierced the. Uh, the pillar right behind my head and lodged itself in the cabin. Are you kidding me? It was that close? Right, literally like two inches behind the headrest of the ambulance, Holy the passenger crap. seat. I'd be and, doing uh, this show by myself right now. Oh, my, my partner. Oh, this was, this was 10, 12 years ago. I was working for AMR at the time. And, uh, and we never found out who did it. We pulled over and we, they investigated. There were no houses around. The best we could figure is it's probably just a stray bullet. Right, right. You know, or, or somebody was on the railroad tracks that, that ran parallel to the highway and decided to take a pot shot at a vehicle. And we just happened to be it. But you get a uh, renewed sense of mortality, let me tell you that. You know, when you, you what the heck was that? And we pull over and look, and there's a there's a bullet hole. It looked like a twenty two. There's a bullet hole in the, in the sheet metal right behind your head. I mean, literally about... I'd say about four inches behind my head. Yeah, that could have uh, that could have been the end of the Chris and Kelly show. Yeah, that could have you know it could have hit my head and, and God, then I'd you know then be the Chris and Chris show. That's right. <laughs> so, well, I mean, I mean, one of the things that really kind of got me. You talked about scene safety. You talked about all those things. I mean, this wasn't even scene safety, man. This was no. them driving to a call. But it's totally you know, random. We're yeah. starting to think about is the the future. You know, when did you even hear about? You know, cops being executed while they were eating lunch or cops being executed while they're sitting. It's only a matter of time before this bridge crosses over, man. And we're going to start to see more and more firefighters and more and more EMTs that are now. I mean, we're starting to see them now with assaults. People, I mean, we're, we're, people we're, using those calls to draw us in. That's and uh, it's got me worried, man. And, and this when this uh, story came out on the 25th, it, it kind of uh, piqued the radar to say, oh, my God, I hope this isn't the start of it. Yeah, uh, that really, uh, that really would. I, I have no words to to say other than to say thank God that they were not injured, right. um, and that uh, <laughs> death uh, death is never as far away as you might think it is. Ain't that the truth, brother? But mm -hmm. uh, we've been talking about the news for quite a bit. There was a lot of great stories here on mm -hmm. the news, and uh, we really kind of took up almost all our time. So why don't you go ahead and give us the uh, ending, and let's get up on out of here. Guys, as always, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. Chris and I enjoy talking to you and uh, talk about the EMS events of the, the previous week. And go to iTunes and be sure to rate our show. Uh, the iTunes link is provided in the webcast page. And for myself, co-host co Chris Ceballero, and all the participants and organizers of these EMS conferences like MSAC and the Connecticut EMS Expo, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. And we'll catch you guys next week.